Science is the free exchange of ideas in the pursuit of the unknown. At least that's how it's supposed to work in theory. So what happens when war breaks out? So what I want researchers to understand is that cyber as a weapon is most useful in the gray zone between peace and outright conflict. Everything developed so quickly and, uh, well, I'm not sure uh, what will be our future, but I'm really optimistic. That's Natalia Otrushchenko, a social scientist at Lviv's Center for Urban History. More from her in a moment. As well as from David Shipley, a cybersecurity expert based in Fredericton, New Brunswick. We do need a new scientific internet for a new Cold War era. My interest in cybersecurity is from a technical side. N. Asokan is a professor of computer science at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. I think we have the tools and, and mechanisms to ensure that even for somebody with sort of state-level resources, it's hard for them to modify something that has been put into the system. There's two parts to the story I'm about to tell. One is digital and logical. The other is emotional. Both have a lot to do with prospects for science in Ukraine. While it's premature to frame how science in Ukraine should be rebuilt after the war, Russian scientists should not expect to be in a Ukrainian lab anytime soon. Before the invasion, research collaborations were already tricky. In 2015, the Ukrainian government banned Soviet symbols and criminalized sympathy for communism. For social scientist Natalia Otrushchenko, some of her oral history research and recorded data was suddenly at odds with the new law. And according to this law, all the people with whom I talked were perceived as uh, criminals. And at some point of time, for me, it was a very weird understanding that, okay, I have a database of people who are uh, behind the Ukrainian law now, and how actually can I protect them? So my initial idea was just to record them on the hard drive and save and uh, well, hide it somewhere <laughs> uh, in the safety. Uh, but now the situation is a bit different. Oh, I'm sorry, because I, I had, we have like the sounds of sirens sometimes, and we have this phantom siren sometimes, so I'm sorry. If, if you do need to go, by all means, go. No, no, that's fine. Well, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it was just a phantom siren. <laughs> Don't worry. And uh, Yes, that was an air raid siren you heard in the background. I'll return to my conversation with Natalia Otrushchenko in a few minutes. She's okay, by the way. Once again, here's David Shipley, the co-founder of Bosaron Security. So Russia has treated Ukraine as its own private cyber warfare lab ever since the uh, the Maiden Revolution and Ukraine's turn towards democracy and the West. Um, this has included shutting down power utilities twice in 2015 and 2016, affecting hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to send political messages both within Ukraine that you belong to us and these are our power plants, as well as in the 2016 attack, um, we can hack them, we can hack you was, was part of their messages around that. In 2017, they upped the ante in a spectacular way. And what they had done is they had targeted one of two accounting software 
software firms in Ukraine that you're required to use to file your business taxes. And they poisoned a software update using this malicious software, not Petya, which was designed to look like ransomware, but is what's known as a wiper, solely designed to be disruptive. It infected hundreds of thousands of devices, caused massive disruptions in Ukraine, accidentally got into the global supply chain through firms like Maersk and Merck and caused billions of dollars of damage globally because of this particular attack. And it was spectacular in its impact, its audacity in terms of going that broad. We had seen smaller level attacks um, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So they've used this as their laboratory. The war has not stopped Natalia Otrushchenko's research. In episode two, Dr. Otrushchenko talked about Lviv's Center for Urban History's new project, Testimonies from the War, recorded conversations with civilians, interviews that may be called upon for war crime trials in the future. Now, this project that we initiated uh, this year, uh, we initiated together with other colleagues from Poland, from the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology of Polish Academy of Science and the Polish Association of Oral History, uh, as well as the University of St. Andrews uh, in the Great Britain and the Center for Contemporary and Digital History in the University of Luxembourg. And the idea of this project is to have these materials archived at the Center for Urban History, Urban Media Archive, and also backed up in Luxembourg. While it's extremely important the testimonies from the war data be secured, it also must be readily available to qualified investigators. This is where it gets complicated. It's one thing to have your data backed up. But how do you know that the integrity of that data hasn't been tampered with? Yeah, I mean, in in particular, Russia is going to want to take steps to um, delete, remove and alter as much. And and they have a track record of this when they um, the World Anti-Doping Agency obviously is involved in various um, things with Russian athletes. You know, they attempted to pull off an attack to attack the integrity of that. They've gone after climate change data in the past. So so this would fit within the operational profile and particularly would be a high value asset. And and the thing is, chain of custody is really important. Um, in being able to prove that the evidence is authentic, hasn't been altered, et cetera, um, to the degrees required. Um, so how do we make sure, A, that we protect the integrity of this information, that we can show that after it was recorded by the researchers with the victims, that this is the true interview, particularly in the era of deep fakes and other things. So the integrity is part of it. And then obviously the availability of this data. So where is it going to be stored? How are we going to back it up? And how are we going to make sure it stays confidential? Because any particular data elements involved with it right now, particularly for victims who are testifying, that may make them a target for actions by the Russian regime. So you've got this triad, this confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. And just simply putting a copy on another server is not a backup strategy. You need to think carefully about how are we going to ensure this, this data is actually going to be safe. And in my view, we look at some of the global providers, so Microsoft, um, AWS, um, Google, and they are in the best place to ensure the, the macro level security, the, the availability of the data center itself, you know, um, the redundancy that's available. And then within that, how are we going to make sure that we control who can upload information into this, who can remove information? So that identity and access management piece, that is absolutely critical. So, so picking the right infrastructure partner and, and just saying, well, we got a server sitting at a university. Eh, 
like uh, super risky. What's their backup strategy? What's their redundancy? What's their physical security controls? All these different things. And then what is the system and the process we're going to use for verifying identity, controlling access, and preserving the data? I think these are the big questions that, that need to get nailed down. Another big question. How much is too much security and what's not enough for academic and scientific research? How do you protect secrets? It is a major concern. Anne Asokin is the director of CPI, the Cybersecurity and Privacy Institute at the University of Waterloo in Ontario. In cybersecurity, uh, people talk about three concerns, right? uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. One could also add privacy to it. So when it comes to research uh, security, you ask this question, like, how do you protect secrets? That is a concern especially in an industry setting. I told you that I, I spent a long time in industry. Uh, industry cares about confidentiality of uh, IP. But in a, in a conflict setting, like the one that we are dealing with in Ukraine, my take is what is critical is uh, availability and integrity. So we have already seen um, the so-called denial of service attacks, all kinds of uh, services in Ukraine. So in denial of service, the, the objective of the attacker is to bring down those uh, services so that they are not available to legitimate users. And we have seen in Ukraine denial of service attacks happening. But the more sinister development is that I've seen reports recently in Ukraine of the so-called data wiping malware that infects systems and then wipes data. So, so think of it like ransomware, except that the attacker is not really after getting money. They just want to destroy data. But in Canada, we will exist for the next 20 years in a gray zone with Russia, where we're neither at peace nor we're at physical war. That means cyber is going to be active in ways we have not experienced before. We have experienced sort of side interest from um, Russian ransomware gangs, which have wreaked havoc, etc. We're about to get treated like Ukraine was from 2014 to 2022. That is the experience. And it's not going to happen immediately. It takes months for cyber operations to happen. So how do we protect integrity and availability? I think that the basic principle is really a duplication. So if you want your data to be not at risk of one system being compromised, then you uh, replicate the data in as many places as possible. Again, if you don't care about the confidentiality of the data, this is a lot easier than otherwise. Right? If, if your data is confidential and you want to replicate it, that's, that's a lot more difficult. David Shipley, this might be a naive question, but is it possible to hide data in plain sight? So yes, um, criminals and others uh, are adept at using steganography and other things to hide data and instructions inside different file formats. This um, has hidden malware inside of uh, video formats. There are lots of ways to hide data within inside other data and hide it in plain sight. Is it on the cheap that they do that, or is it something that's requires a lot of resources. It, it does require a lot of resources, a lot of thinking. You got to think about how it's going to be found and decoded and all that stuff. And that's probably, if we think about this as a spectrum, that's probably, it's really cool James Bond, but its practicality is, is, is kind of limited in that sense. I think really good, strong cryptography that's, that's readily available for people to protect that the data is safe and only securely accessed by those that have it is, is the good balance point. I think what you just described a few moments ago was the blockchain in a way. Have I got that right about how to protect 
the authenticity and the originality that's not deep faked and all that kind of stuff that we're living with these days? No, I wouldn't say that blockchain is necessarily the attestation technology that I would I'd recommend. I'm, I'm, I've seen very few use cases of blockchain where you can't do it more computationally efficiently or securely with other technology. There are ways, of course, of being able to establish that this was the, the file that was really generated, simple things like file hashing. So I'm thinking, thinking simpler. Although there's one interesting thing about this sort of the myth of the internet. Uh, ARPANET and others were, were experimenting, and of course, they handed it over to the universities to then um, build, and universities just trusted each other. So the idea of the IT admin inside a university could read everyone's emails, like, yeah, but why would they ever do that? So the internet is not inherently secure. It's robust in its ability to make connections and it's to tolerate faults or errors, but it is not secure by design, and which is why we have to be so intentional about the systems and processes we choose to protect critical data, because this stuff doesn't do it naturally. It just doesn't occur on its own. It, it takes effort. David Chipley, in your area of security, uh, you're a busy fellow these days, obviously, because there's been not just ransomware. We're talking about wholesale attacks, denial of service, all these kinds of things that are part of our regular day of modern living in a digital world. Now, let's just talk about it in reverse. Ukraine has been invaded. And if you think of software designers or malware operators who are now wearing white hats for the good guys, could they create the conditions to if they're being attacked, to have a Trojan themselves and send something back over the transom? In other words, could they create some reverse engineered ransomware? There is the technical capability that say you've left, and we'll talk about this defensively. So there's a great company called Thinks Canary, and they do things called Canary Tokens. And so the moment these tokens get touched, you know someone's in your data center doing something they shouldn't have known. So theoretically, you could booby trap a honey token like that and try and, and go at an attacker, um, depending on how well their operational security is, how well they're doing things. Maybe you can cause them some headaches. Um, and we did see with um, the NVIDIA hack an attempt to hack back and uh, encrypt the data after it had been stolen um, by criminals. So, so we see that. More likely, I think the effort is going to go um, straightly on to, to offense, not waiting for someone to get into your data and trip it to go after them, um, although that would be cleaner from an attribution revenge standpoint. We're seeing a lot of hacktivists and others go at um, Russian infrastructure, particularly television stations, social media sites, government websites, other things. And I understand intensely the moral motivation for people to want to stand up for Ukraine. But it's not okay to attack Russia's healthcare system, which is actually something we saw activists do. That is in of itself a war crime. So we cannot combat Russian atrocity with crimes on our own side. And in some cases, um, actions by hacktivists might be undermining Western intelligence efforts in those very same networks. So your, your moral crusade may be tripping up more in-depth efforts by others to more tangibly undermine the Russian regime. There's been an interesting debate about the Belarusian cyber partisans who've been taking down aspects of the Belarusian network for the transit system and, and wondering if they might be undermining other efforts to gain information and do physical sabotage. So, so it's a double-edged sword. 
You mentioned this earlier that scientists, generally speaking, in the old days of ARPANET, the very beginnings of the contemporary internet, tended to trust one another, as scientists do with the research, free flow of information, et cetera, et cetera. How is science going to be conducted securely? Everything that you've seen thus far, including the surprises, what does the future look like for Russian, Ukrainian, and Canadian collaborations in science? Oh, wow. Um, I think we're in Cold War II, and I think anyone that doesn't acknowledge that is, I don't know what world they're living in. I, I don't think we'll see normalized relations between Canada and Russia until Putin is gone and there's been substantive regime change inside that country, which I don't see happening anytime soon. I think we are going to see, um, for those in the Western part of Ukraine and, and what remains, I think there will be a strong urge to collaborate. I think their infrastructure will constantly be under attack. And so I think the, the kind of controls and systems put in place to facilitate the exchange of data will be more intensive. That, that's my view on it. Professor Osokan, you at the University of Waterloo, if we look at the immediate future for data security and stuff like that, what are we learning from the current hostility? Uh, and I'll leave that as a last question. Well, like I said, this data wiping malware is something that we have started to see that has changed. So when you are thinking about securing something, it is always a question of sort of cost-benefit analysis. And the cost-benefit applies not only to the defender, but also to the attacker, right? So you you need to protect against attack that that is worthwhile for the attacker to mount. Data security is not just about the technical protection mechanisms. Perhaps if I I have to leave you with with one thought, I would say that cybersecurity is increasingly clear that it's a multidisciplinary and to have effective solutions, you need collaboration of not only computer scientists and engineers, but also cognitive scientists and so on. David Shipley, what does the future of collaboration look like? Be very careful of what channels we use. I have a lot of open questions about Telegram and its security and its relationships back to Russia. Um, So I I am very, very cautious about um, whose means of secure communication that you are using. I think Ideally, I would love to see the academic community potentially take the open source technology behind Signal and other things and establish a secure scientific communication um, channel and an encryption with governance and everything else because, because key bono, who benefits? So, so why are people providing these infrastructure, these technologies, who's benefited by the flow of the information, et cetera, is really important to me when I think about motivations and, and what could be done with data. We do need a new scientific internet for a new Cold War era. We can learn the lessons that we've now learned of 30 years of the mass internet and build that more secure. And, and thus far, academic collaboration is mostly focused on building capacity. So high-speed networks, bandwidth, storage, and compute. Cool. Now we have to think secure. And then we're, we're seeing elements of the federal government budget and, and great work to build the collaborations and the research around building secure academia. Um, but that's what we need. We need to defend the ivory tower because politically, ideologically motivated attacks against research are not unique to Russia. We are going to be under a siege and the university and knowledge and science is going to be under pressure like we've never seen before. And so there will be attacks on the integrity and the accuracy of research and we need to be able to defend that. 
David Shipley is the co-founder of Beauceron Security. He's in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I think history will record the invasion of Ukraine as the first major round of 21st century asymmetric warfare, where digital plays a leading role in the theater of conflict. Now, how this affects the progress of open scientific research and future collaboration in Ukraine, in Europe, or in Canada and the West, well, that will be discussed in the next podcast. You'll hear from four Ukrainian scientists. They'll talk about their concerns for science in their country, what they foresee for research opportunities, what can be rebuilt, and what's been irrevocably changed since the Russian invasion. Research in Ukraine. Where is it going? The podcast series was made possible by Genome Canada. Mike Spear is the producer. Until next time, I'm Don Hill.